Hey, well, good morning, Midtown. Glad that you guys have joined us this morning. Braves through the uh, very, very crazy rain and rainy week. Uh, we're going to have a good time in worship. Uh, already enjoyed the worship with the band and great uh, testimony to hear from our women's leadership team. I want to give a welcome to any of you particularly who are visiting. So if you're visiting with a friend or just checking out Midtown for the first time, really glad that you've joined us. Hope you'd fill out one of those connection cards uh, just so we can get back in touch with you. Um, I've got some good news, so we'll do a couple little family updates real quick. One, uh, particularly you college students and those that love uh, Josh and Kari, they had their baby Avery. Yeah, so uh, be praying for them. They're, they're very happy. She's healthy and doing great. Um, also, another quick family announcement is today is Jenny's last Sunday on staff with us. So let's all give Jenny a hand. <laughs> She's served faithfully for six years with us, and so I hope that you would uh, just tell her that you appreciate her and uh, force a hug on her. She would really love that as well, I'm sure. <laughs> um, you guys doing good with the Saturate Fast? I Many of you know that we're like in 21-day uh, fast period. We're all fasting from different things in different ways where we're fasting from something, and then we're also fasting towards something, so maybe we're trying to take on another habit, habit for the 21 days. Going good, I hope. I know at RMC we had a great discussion and everyone has been participating in different ways. Just want to encourage you to keep going. This is the last week, particularly if maybe you, you didn't follow through on something you're trying to fast from or fast toward, like it's okay just to, to pick back up and start again. It's not like it's just over because you broke your habit or you didn't do something that you really wanted to do. Like just, just make this another week to seek God and, and try again and step back on. We hope, too, that you'd use the devotional that we're using together, that we've created this really great devotional. This week's prayers are actually focused on praying that we would go make disciples in the city. So it's a really cool time for us to look at some scriptures about that talk about how we're supposed to go make disciples. Also, each day has like a little emphasis on a particular part of the mission of Midtown Church and how you can pray into what we're trying to do as a church. So I would encourage you to be faithful this last week and then join us for the partner gathering on Saturday, uh, next Saturday, which you'll hear more about. Um, I know myself personally, one of the things that I've been doing for fasting toward is I've chosen to like write a note to 21 different neighbors, so like a different note to a neighbor every single day during the 21 days with a scripture and just kind of a reminder that I'm praying for them, which is kind of risky because I don't know if some of them are going to appreciate it or not. It's overall been received pretty positively, nothing too negative, some silence, but a lot of thank yous and stuff like that, but was particularly encouraged this morning that I actually got an email from someone I dropped a note off with uh, yesterday. And to be a little discreet, I won't share the whole details, but, but she sent a reply back and said, hey, this came at just the right time. Like, something's going on in my family, and they're engaged, so there's something's going on in our engagement, and your encouragement means a lot to us. And she said, I want to come to y'all's MC on Wednesday so that we can begin to make this a priority in our lives. Isn't that awesome? So you never know what God's going to do, and we encourage you guys just to keep taking, taking steps of faith to whatever God put on your heart to do. Um, have y'all had fun with Malachi? Or we can call him the, I call him the Italian prophet Malachi. He's like the, he's Malachi, he's got a lot to tell us. So, I'm sorry, that was really bad. I shouldn't have done it. So, Malachi, or Malachi, uh, we've had a great time walking through this book together. I found it to be really encouraging. And so, what, what we're going to do today is we're actually going to end the entire book. And I thought maybe before we end the book, we'd like to do a review and look through kind of the whole book real quick to kind of set us up for the way that it ends, because it ends on a pretty powerful note that's both super encouraging for us who've put faith in Christ, but also super sobering for those who've not chosen to fear God. And so uh, we're going to look at that, but I thought first we'd start with a little bit of the history. And before we actually look at the scriptures, just a reminder, this is what's called the post-exile period. So all of Israel had been taken captive by Babylon, 
And then when the, the Persians came and ruled over Babylon, the Persians were nicer, and they actually told the Jewish people that they were free to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple. So you find a lot of this history in Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then these prophets at the end of Scripture. And Malachi is speaking to this time that they've been actually about 100 years. They've rebuilt the temple. They started doing sacrifices again, which they hadn't done in so long. But after about 100 years, they start to get weary because when they started setting up this temple and instituting the sacrifices, they were expecting that God's kingdom was going to come, that Jesus, the Messiah, well, what they would call the Messiah, was going to come and make his reign and his rule known in the earth. But after about 100 years of waiting, they begin to get restless, and they begin to wander and get weary, and they start asking questions about, is it really worth it? Is God really going to do what he said he's going to do? And so the whole book of Malachi is actually... God coming through the prophet Malachi and encouraging the people to purify the way that they've worshipped because their worship over these hundred years of waiting had begun to erode and be corrupted. And if you remember what happens in Malachi is God would come through Malachi with a message, he'd make a statement, and then the people would ask a question and then God would answer their question. And so you've got like these six rhythms of questions. So just for review, let's look at them again together. The first is God says, I've loved you. And then the people ask, well, how have you loved us? And God says, by showing you mercy and grace. He points out that the way that God has not given them what they deserved, and beyond that, he's actually given them what they don't deserve, that he's been merciful and he's loved them. I love that it starts that way because the rest of these are going to kind of be rebukes to the people, but he starts with a reminder that he loves them. Secondly, he says, you've shown contempt for my name. And they say, well, how have we shown contempt? He says, by bringing defiled sacrifices. And he says, even the priests were doing this. They were allowing for it, that that instead of giving God their best, they were kind of giving God their leftovers. And he says, this isn't the worship that I've asked for. Can you relate? Like, we're kind of in the same period. I like to look at Malachi in our day to say, just as they were maybe growing weary waiting for the coming Messiah, we're growing weary waiting for Jesus to return. And we find ourselves in the same spot, maybe asking like, well, God, how have you loved us? Or asking ourselves or maybe finding ourselves, maybe giving God our leftovers. Well, the third thing he says is, you've been unfaithful. They say, well, how have we been unfaithful? He says, you've been unfaithful by committing divorce and idolatry. That in our weariness, we, like the people in that day, waiting for Jesus to come back, waiting for him to take us home, we, we start to grow weary, and maybe we give ourselves to idols. We're prone to lust and to wander away. The next question, number four, was how have you, you've, you've wearied me with your words? And they said, well, how have we wearied you? He says, by saying that God's unjust. So you're questioning God's justice time and time again, and God says, this is wearying me. We're probably like that ourselves, too, as we're waiting for Jesus to come. We look at the injustice in the world, and we say, where are you, God? We can do the same. And the one we heard last week, God says, return to me. And they say, well, how do we return to you? And he says, well, you start by coming to me with your tithes and offerings. The problem is that you've started, you've neglected giving, and the giving is where your heart will follow where your money is. And so here's the way you return to me. Start giving again like you're supposed to and helping build up what was, what was meant to be part of their worship. And so today we get to this last one. This last question that they have is they say that God comes to them and says, you've spoken arrogantly against me. They again say, well, how have we done that? How have we spoken arrogantly? He says, by saying that it's futile to serve God. They ultimately got to a point where they just thought, this isn't worth it anymore because God's not rewarding us. So it's futile to serve God. Let's read what he said here, just by way of introduction. This is the end of chapter 3. He says, You've spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet, I, yet you ask, what have we said against you? You've said it's futile to serve God. 
What do we gain by carrying out the requirements and going on like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. So after these hundred years of waiting, they're basically asking the question like, where are you, God? Like, is this kingdom really going to come? And they begin to question their faith to say, is it even worth it to serve God? Is God really going to reward us? Is there something in the future? They're doubting everything, and they're saying it's not worth it to serve God. And so I want us to wrestle with that question as we kind of go through the rest of this sermon. Is it worth it, ultimately, to give our lives to follow God, to put our faith in Christ and follow Him? Do we ever prone to doubt and waiting for His return and start to question, like, is this really worth it? Is there really a heaven that awaits us? Is there really a new kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth that's coming? And so God's going to respond to this question. In one way, it's super encouraging because He's going to say, yes, there's a promise that's coming, and He's going to make them very clear that this promise is happening. But it's also pretty sobering because He's going to say, there's also a future judgment that's coming. And this justice that you're looking at the evildoers and saying, look at all the ways that they're getting away with things, and God's unjust, and it's futile to serve God, he's going to say there's going to be a time of reckoning where God will make things right. And those who haven't feared God and put their faith in our day, put their faith in Christ, will be judged. And so it's both super encouraging, which I hope today would lead us to a place of worship, but it's also super sobering to realize there is a judgment day that's coming. And so I'm going to pray for myself because it's not easy to talk about these things, and I hope actually to stick to my notes pretty closely, uh, so uh, don't mind if I'm reading a lot. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures just so we can let the scriptures speak for themselves on this matter as much as we can. Let's pray. God, we pray that today you would encourage us with these truths, that we who like the people in Malachi are, are waiting for your coming, are waiting for this new heaven and new earth, your kingdom to come, your will to be done. We're prone to the same weariness that we've seen throughout this book, and we pray that today, as we look at the promise that you've given us, that we would, we would rejoice in it, particularly, Lord, as we sing and take communion at the end, that our hearts would be filled with worship and expectation of your coming. And when it comes to your judgment, would you just sober our hearts and give us a heart for all of our friends or family who've yet to put their faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll look first here, continuing in chapter 3, on what he says to the righteous. He says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard, and a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Let's look first at this faithful. I love that in this whole book of Malachi, we don't quite get a, a sense of if they responded or not to what Malachi said with all these six things that happen and these questions that they ask and how God responds back. But we, we know at least from this passage that there were a few who actually heard the message and responded. It says of them two things, that they feared the Lord and that they talked with each other. Now, fear in this stance is like the biblical definition of fear. The fear of the Lord is just to stand in awe of God, to be reverent before God, to believe that God is the God who created the heavens, the earth, that He's the one who gives us life, that we have nothing apart from God, and so our hearts should naturally just fear God. It really means to worship God, to call God God and recognize Him as being our Lord. 
and they had this fear within them. And then I love what they did. It says that they then began to speak to each other. Like this is a cool little detail that, that Malachi uh, covers here, that they spoke with each other. Do you guys recognize that that can be true like in your day, that repentance in your heart is sometimes not real until you confess it before other people? So here are some people that respond to the message of Malachi and they gather together and they start to talk about it. What should we do? What is God speaking to you? How is God calling us to respond? And the people who fear God speak with one another. I might date myself a little bit by this illustration, but have you all seen the movie The Firm or read the book The Firm? Fairly old? Wait, no nods. This is bad. All right, okay, we have a couple. All right, so Tom Cruise is this lawyer, <laughs> and he gets caught up with his bad law firm that's doing illegal stuff and working for gangs and stuff like that, and they actually blackmail him early on in his first year. They, they trick him into having adultery. They, they trick him into all these schemes and lies, and when he finally figures it out, he's trying to figure out a way out of it, but he'll never come clean with his wife, which could break the blackmail that they had over him, and there's one line that I've always loved that in kind of a critical point in the movie, he says... Nothing's, in real, nothing's real until I tell Abby. Like in his heart, like nothing's real until she knows, and that's when things can change. And I, I get this sense, like this idea of fellowship of people who fear the Lord and were willing to confess to each other and say, let's be real and let's respond to what God said. And there's repentance among them. But then look at how the Lord, the Lord responds. I love this. The Lord listened and he heard, and a scroll of remembrance was written in the presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. So first thing we see is the Lord listens. And so I want to point out something that we probably all agree, at least intellectually, but if, if we're honest, like me, I'll say it, it sometimes doesn't get from my head to my heart, is that God sees, like God listens. And God's watching when he comes to you with his word, and, and he watches to see if you're going to respond to it. And God notices. He notices what we're talking about. He notices if we go before others and tell them where we're struggling. He knows in our hearts whether we're fearing the God. And we know that in our head because if God is all sovereign, He sees all things, but rarely do we maybe really dwell on it that God knows everything. Not just what I do, but He knows the motives of my heart. I'm completely exposed before God. God sees. Not only that, it says He records. He records the scroll of remembrance. We don't know exactly what this was, but we know that it was common in their day that if, if something was to happen the king or some authority might actually write down something in the scroll so that it wouldn't be forgotten. You see it actually in the same era in the book of Esther. Mordecai helped save the people of Israel, and it says the king at that time wrote down on a scroll, kind of like a scroll of remembrance, the deeds that Mordecai had done so that the people of Israel would be protected. It's the idea of like someone in authority writing something down so that nothing can come against you, so it would be recorded. And I want to say that God doesn't only see, He doesn't only read and know our hearts. God writes it down. You know, it's not like God writes it down because he, like, forgets. It's not like God needs to remember. I think this is more a metaphor for our sake to know that God knows everything and he's recording everything. Some of you all know me that I'm, uh, like, a super NFL nerd. Like, I've always been, like, way into football. And this, this will make you see, seem really geeky, but when I was in elementary school, my brother and I and my, one of my neighbors down the street, we would actually record our own pregame shows on a tape recorder. And so we would put all the teams that were playing each other that week, and we would, like, do commentary on it. So we'd push record, and we'd be like, hey, so, you know, Miami's playing Tampa Bay this week. You know, who do you think will win and why? And we'd record it. And there was one case where I actually said, I believe that this week Miami's going to beat the Dolphins, which, if you don't know, those, that's the same team. 
All right, so I said, Miami's going to beat the Dolphins. And they just started laughing at me, and they said, you know, you messed that up. I'm like, no, I didn't. I did not say that. Well, the bad thing is, like, recording it, <laughs> because they're like, let's go to the books. Record back, and sure enough, Miami's going to beat the Dolphins. Like, that's the detriment of recording, right? If you guys ever played sports, or I played football growing up in high school football, uh, one of the least favorite days with the whole kind of leading up to the game and after the game was Saturday, because you know what Saturday is? Saturday is film day, and so you've got your game on Friday, and then Saturday morning you've got to get up early, and you're going to watch a film of every single mistake that you made. I remember literally like making a mistake in the game, and like one of the first things that happened, like in the middle of the game, I'm thinking, that's going to suck tomorrow. Like tomorrow, I'm going to have to watch that, and the coach is going to yell at me. Or I've had times where like I saw a guy make a worse mistake in the middle of the game, I'm thinking, hey, at least it's going to come on him and maybe less attention on me because he's the one that made a worse mistake. Because film recording. You can't get away from it. And this is this idea that God's recording. And, and, and look carefully in this one. He's actually recording the faithfulness of God's people. Here were some people who feared God and responded, and God's recording it for all time. And this is seen several places throughout Scripture, probably most prominently in uh, the end of Revelation, when God says this, or God is uh, giving a vision to John. Then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up their dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up their dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of the life was thrown into the lake of fire. We don't know exactly how this is going to play out, exactly what it's going to look like. This is John's vision, but what's very clear is that there is a day of judgment that's coming. And there is a book that God's recorded, the things that we've done, the things that we've left undone. And we're all going to be judged for them. Now, we're going to get to this at the end of the sermon, but I feel like I can't really go beyond this, but to, to point out the good news of the gospel, which we'll do again and again throughout this message, that we who put our faith in Christ, our salvation is sure, that we all are sinners before God. We should all be thrown into this lake of fire, but for Jesus, who died and paid the penalty for our sins, and 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it so clearly that God made him, referring to Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that we might have the righteousness of God. It's our faith in Christ and Him paying the penalty for our sins, His resurrection from the dead that can bring us to life and be righteous before God. We have to remember that. So our names who put our faith in Christ are already in the book of, the li- uh, in the book of life, but we'll still be judged for the things that we've done or left undone. We'll mention that again later, as we should. But I want to go on uh, further here in Malachi. He says this, on that day when I act, says the Lord, they will be my treasured possession. I'll spare them as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. So what is God's heart towards his people? I love this because you get what his heart is. His heart is that he would have a people for his own as his treasured possession. Like that's God's ultimate desire. That is the story of the Bible, guys. That is the story of God going after his people again and again and again, trying to make his people his very own, adopting us into his family. This is the heart of God to make us his treasured possession because he loves us. 
He loves us enough to send his son to die for us to make a way that we could be his treasured possession. This is God's heart. I recently did a study because I, I really love this phrase, this idea of being God's treasured possession, or really there's a, a phrase that's used throughout Scripture where God says, they will be my people and I will be their God. And I found it so often in Scripture that a couple months ago I just did a study. I just used Bible Gateway and looked up that phrase and looked at every single Scripture that had that. One thing that I found is almost every time that God would say, they would be my people and I would be their God, it's like God describing through the prophets or through the apostles like this ideal situation, that the, the thing that God loves the most, what he wants the most in every ideal situation, it's that we would be his people and that he would be our God. I just want to read two to you. The first is in the New Covenant, which you'd find in Jeremiah 31. He says, this is a covenant I will make with the people of Israel at that after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor and say to one another, know the Lord, because all will know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This is really the new covenant that when Jesus was gathered together with his disciples on his last day, the meal that we'll celebrate here at the end of our service, in his last supper, he says, this is a new covenant that's given to you. Jesus was directly referring to this covenant, that there's going to be a new covenant comes, that our righteousness is not gained by attaining the law or looking to a coming Messiah, but there would be a righteousness that's attained by putting our faith in Christ, that his death and resurrection would give us right standing before God, that would adopt us into his family. And Jesus is saying, this is the ideal that Jeremiah painted, that God would be our God and that we would be his people, his treasured possession. But going back to the book of Revelation, it describes it the exact same way. When it's describing in the new heavens and new earth, one of the primary ways that God describes the glory of what's to come is that he'll be our God and we'll be his people, his treasured possession. Look at Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven of God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who's seated on the throne says, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is God's ideal. In the last book of the Bible, in the last chapters of the Bible, God is saying, this is what I'm doing, creating a heaven, new heaven, new earth. For what purpose? so that these people I want as my treasured possession will be my people and I'll be their God. I want you to hear that's what God wants. He not only wants that, he wants to spare. If we go back to Malachi, he says, as a loving father has, spares his child who serves him, that's what God's desire is to spare us. And I know some of us here grew up with very, very loving fathers that we could actually look to our father and say, I know my father would die for me. I know my father would long to spare me from any harm. Some of us maybe didn't have that privilege. Some of you are fathers, and those of you who are fathers, I, I can almost say, I can say with certainty, like you would do anything for your children. Like this is God's heart for you. He would love to spare you from all judgment just as a father would. That's God's heart. So I want you to get that before we go on to these next verses. God wants us as his treasured possession. God wants to spare us. 
But then he goes on in Malachi to say this, <clears throat> that there will once again be distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Remember the people of Malachi saying it's futile to serve God. They're basically asking, like, is this ultimately going to make a difference? Is there ultimately going to be any justice? And God now here is going to turn and respond, yes, this ultimately will be for your best interest to serve me and fear me because then I'll spare you. But there's some who aren't going to serve. He describes them here as the righteous or the wicked. He describes them here as those who serve God and those who don't. That there is going to be a distinction at the end of time between those who do and those who don't. And that's what he gets into in chapter 4. Chapter 4, he says this, Surely the day is coming when I will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day is coming when I'll set, on them, uh, set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. That's what God says will happen, that there's a day that's coming where there will be distinction between those who've, in our day, put their faith in Christ and those who've not, those who've feared God and those who've not, those who've served God and those who've not, that there will be distinction in a final day of judgment, this day of the Lord, as it's called throughout the Old Testament in particular. And I love that it says that there'll be their thoughts and their deeds will be judged because it's those who are arrogant, so their, their heart, God sees their heart and their motive, but also those evildoers, it's our deeds that will be judged, both our heart and our deeds. God says he sees them and those who've continued to walk away from God with arrogance and with evil doing, there will be distinction and they will be judged, they'll be burned up. Going back to Revelation, here's how Revelation describes it, both God's ideal and his judgment for those who don't uh, follow him. He said this to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end. To those who thirst, I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. There it is again. But to the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexual immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, and liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning, and this is the second death. There's a couple things that are really clear here, that there will be a second death. Like I've already said, that God's desire, secondly, God's desire is that we'd be his treasured possession. But clearly, there's some who just choose not to fear God. They choose not to serve him. And there will be a second death. But turn now to the promise that he says, going back to Malachi. But those who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. So there's healing. And you'll go out and frolic like well-fed calves. I believe that to mean there will be joy. Then you'll trample on the wicked and there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act. I think that means there will be justice. So for those who feared the Lord, for us who put our faith in Christ, God promises healing and joy and justice forever. I can't help but think this week, uh, given the week that Billy Graham died. I don't know if you've listened to much of the news or I've listened to a number of things just to hear small snippets of recordings of his messages. And his messages were always the same. They were the simple gospel that there's a God who created us that's both holy and righteous, that man is sinful and that man has turned away from God, that we've gone our own way, but that God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us, pay the penalty for our sin, and he rose from the dead to give us life. But if we'll only put our faith in him, that God would save us 
and we'd spend eternity with God as he's promised. Watched a little interview that Billy Graham gave with Diane Sawyer, and she was just asking him, it was kind of when he was older, like about the end of his life, and he, he just said real humbly, like, I've done my best to, to serve God, but only God is my judge. He said, I hope someday to hear, well done, my faith, good and faithful servant, referring to a parable that Jesus gave about this final judgment. He even said, I heard this one, one thing that he said at the end of his life, he says, when you hear in the news the sentence, Billy Graham is dead, he said, don't believe it, because I'll be alive more than I've ever been alive. That's true. It's the simple gospel. It's what he held to. That's true for us. I want to make a few very, very quick comments. I don't think I can get into um, the scriptures that I had for the sake of time because I want us to have time to worship. But I want to do say a, a few things real quick about judgment, heaven and hell as we relate to it in our day, real quickly. It's very clear that there will be a judgment day, like the passages are really clear in Scripture. Second, Jesus spoke about it more than anyone else. He told parables. He told about cutting off parts of your body rather than enter to hell. <clears throat> he talked about the parable of talents. He, he spoke about there being sheeps and goats that would be separated. There would be wheat and weeds that would be separated. Jesus spoke about it. Uh, the Bible, <laughs> uh, you can't help but teach. If you're going to teach the Bible, you have to talk about it. That's one thing that we're doing here in Malachi. Like, we didn't just pick this for the fun of it. We're, we're teaching through a book, and if you're teaching through a book with integrity, you're going to come across these passages. And so we should be honest and loving when speaking about it, about it. and we should be loving most of all. In other cultures, it's per- perfectly acceptable to talk about heaven and hell, um, but in our culture particularly, it's not acceptable because we're, we kind of swim in the, the water of relativism and tolerance pluralism. And so the idea, like all of us, I would encourage us in this church that we do believe in tolerance. We believe everyone can make their own choices, and we'll love people no matter what they believe. But it doesn't mean that we, we can't believe that there is this judgment day, and with, with love in our hearts, tell other people that God wants them as his treasured possession and invite them into it. We've all experienced negative examples. All of you who've been at UT, you've crossed the drag, and you've watched the, 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 the street preachers that are screaming and yelling and condemning everyone that walks across. Some of you grew up in churches that led with condemnation. And so I want to encourage us at least in three things as we consider this topic of judgment, hell, and heaven. I don't think I'll have time to read the scriptures, but I'll just tell you, one, don't judge others. Like it's not our job to judge others. Jesus would tell many parables where he would talk to people who would say, hey, um, on that day, many will say, like, I, I did all these things in your name. And he'll say, I never knew you. Like, we don't know the conditions of people's hearts. Let me leave it at that. Second, do judge yourself. What we are called to do is examine our own hearts and continue to examine our own hearts that our own hearts would truly be having faith in Christ and seeing God transform our lives. And last, we want to lead with love. And I do want to read this scripture because Jesus, when he was speaking to this guy, Nicodemus, who came to him to say, "What, what must I do to get eternal life? Jesus is really clear. And he says this in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they've not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. What does Jesus lead with? He tells Nicodemus, God loves you. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. He leads with love. 
reminds him that this is God's love for you, that he wants you, Nicodemus, as his treasured possession, enough that he would die for you and send his son to die for you. And how do we get eternal life? By simply believing in him. God did not send his son to condemn the world. That's not what God's heart is, but to save the world through him. But there are people who stand condemned already because they've not believed. And so our call is to lead with love and to remind people that Jesus has died for them and that he wants them to be his treasured possession. Let me look to the last few verses of Malachi as we wrap up. Here's what he says. Remember the law of my servant Moses and the decrees and the laws that I gave him at Horeb and all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the heart of parents to their children, the children, hearts of children to their parents, or else I will come and strike this land with total destruction. He's making them a promise again, and he's saying two things. He's one saying, I've already spoken, like go back to the law, continue to hope, and, and this is in Malachi's day, continue to go back to the law and hope for this coming Messiah. And not only have I spoken, I will speak, but I'm sending this prophet Elijah. Without getting into this, it could be John the Baptist, Jesus pointed to that. Others believe that this is actually a second coming of Elijah, which you would read about in Revelation. So whether it was John the Baptist or this coming Elijah in Revelation, or possibly both, because prophecies sometimes can mean two things, God is promising that he will continue to speak. So God has spoken, and he promises that he'll continue to speak. And guess what, friends? How he speaks now in our day is he speaks to you and I, that we're his voice, that go out, and we're so to speak, the voice of Elijah that prepare the way for people to hear about Jesus. I like the book of 2 Peter because in 2 Peter, it kind of parallels some of what we've been studying in Malachi. Here were some people that were also dispersed in lots of different places, and Peter's writing them and trying to encourage them to hold fast to Christ, to hold on to the promise that there will be eternal life, to not waver, to not be weary in waiting for him so that their worship would begin to suffer. And he writes them this in the book of 2 Peter, which we'll close with these verses because I think it speaks so powerfully to how we in our day are supposed to wait for the coming Messiah. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Like, why has Christ not come back? Because he still wants to save, because God's so patient, that he's so patient that he's continuing to call more people as his treasured possession. That's why he's waiting. But the day of the Lord, the same day we're talking about, it will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Well, since then, everything will be destroyed this way. What kind of people ought we to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. Like, as believers in Christ, we look forward to this day. We want to speed its coming. That day will bring about destruction by heaven with fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promises, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be spotless and blameless, at peace with him, and bear in mind... The Lord's patience means salvation. God's still waiting to save more. Just as our brother Paul wrote to you and the wisdom God gave him, I like this part too because I agree with it. He writes the same in all his letters, speaking in them in many of these matters. His letters contain some things that are very hard to understand. 
which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So I tried my best to talk about this in the context of Malachi. In the context of Malachi, you might ask, what, were, what was it that made them righteous? What, what he was calling them to do was to remember the law of Moses and to look forward to a coming Messiah. What the Word of God for us would be today, that we remember the gospel of Jesus and what He's done for us, which we can do when we celebrate communion today, to remember the goodness that God has done, what He's done by, by, by sending His Son to die for us, that we could have this relationship with Him. We remember the gospel, and then we wait for a coming Messiah. How else should we respond? And I hope we'll respond well this morning. Let's worship. Let's respond by praising God for His grace and the assurance of our salvation. We're going to sing songs about that. And I want us to sing with all of our hearts, praising God that He has saved us and our salvation is sure. The new heavens and new earth are ours, that we are His treasured possession. But how else should we respond? We should respond as His witnesses because we should commit to be His witnesses so that others can know the same joy of our salvation and inherit the kingdom of God with us. Let's pray. And let's worship. Father, we rest in you as our salvation. We have no hope in it of our own except that we put our faith in you. And Jesus, you said it so clearly. And you spoke to Nicodemus that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God, we want to rejoice in this eternal life that you've given us by celebrating communion, by worshiping and singing these songs that boast of our assurance, and even as we do, uh, compel us to be not just your worshipers, but your witnesses in this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.